Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Lisa Rudy, associate publisher, Cranes Detroit Business. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to Crane's Detroit Business Annual Leadership Healthcare Summit. So this morning we've gathered top leadership from the healthcare industry to talk about the gaps between providers, payers, and patients. So whether you're a surgeon or a therapist, a hospital administrator, or a benefits navigator, you've come to understand that there are gaps that exist on all sides of healthcare. Gaps in communication between doctors and those they are working so hard to heal. Gaps in access to services for some portions of our population. And gaps in how payers fund levels of care. So bridging these gaps will create a system that works for all. It will improve healthcare literacy, help us embrace healthcare innovations, and result in smarter healthcare policy. After all, as we are about to learn from our keynote speaker, even providers become patients at some points in their lives. So before we start, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please join me in thanking our title sponsor, Michigan Association of Health Plans. I'd like to thank our sponsors for our breakout sessions, Delta Dental of Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, and McLaren Healthcare. Our major sponsor is Aetna, and our networking break sponsor is Henry Ford Health System. So please now join me in welcoming to the stage Dominic Pallone, Executive Director of Michigan Association of Health Plans. Dominic. Thank you. I appreciate the introduction and I appreciate the opportunity to be here again this year with you all. Uh, good morning. And I'm Dominic Pallone. I'm the Executive Director of the Michigan Association of Health Plans. And I want to start uh, just with a, a couple brief moments here to thank Cranes. Uh, for again putting on a great event together, bringing such great thought leaders in healthcare and health policy together in one space for today to, to have uh, take part in today's discussions. Um, and I want to uh, thank again Cranes for allowing us at the Michigan Association of Health Plans to be the title sponsor here today. As the executive director for an association representing 13 health plans that provide access to high quality health care for more than 3 million Michiganders, I'd like to take a moment to welcome everyone to the summit. I'm sure everyone's excited here today to hear from our excellent speakers. And now more than ever, we find ourselves at a crossroads with healthcare. The attention of consumers uh, and state and federal policymakers is rightly focused on our healthcare delivery system. And we're all here today because we care about health in one way or another. We, all recognize the need for improvements to the current system, and we chose to spend today together discussing and looking for ways to accomplish those improvements. This is what our member health plans do on a daily basis for those three million Michiganders they serve. Health plans are constantly looking for ways to improve healthcare delivery system by helping enrollees to navigate it. 
Our health plans obsess about the people they serve and the use of healthcare services by those people. And whether there are uh, in commercial, Medicaid, Medicare product lives, uh, lines, uh, health plans are always trying to keep their enrollees healthy and happy. They're always constantly as well acting as good stewards of their, of their enrollees' limited resources. And at the Michigan Association of Health Plans, we continue to stay focused on advancing the value of managed care. And while we're excited to take part in the Healthcare Leadership Summit today, uh, because it unites some of the best minds in healthcare policy uh, to, to have robust discussions and look for ways to improve the, the existing system. And so without further ado, I'm looking forward to today's events, and I'm excited to get the day started. And again, thank you all for being here, and thank you to Cranes for putting on this great event. So thank you, Dominic, and thank you again to all of our sponsors. Now I'd like to turn the program over to our MC, Amy Elliott Bragg, who will walk us through the rest of the morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being here today. It's my pleasure now to introduce Dr. Rena Audish, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Henry Ford Hospital. She is also director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program and serves as the medical director of care experience for the entire Henry Ford Health System. After experiencing severe critical illness herself, she recommitted to improving the experience of care for both patients and their physicians. Dr. Audish's critically acclaimed best-selling book, In Shock, has been released in eight languages, 60 countries, and is required reading for over 50 medical schools across the country. The New York Times review of the book noted, quote, it delivers the sobering message that being a physician does not confer upon you the ability to exist outside of life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rena Audish. really honored to be here presenting to you. As you heard, I'm a physician, uh, but today I'll really be sharing with you my patient's story. I wasn't seeking transformation in 2008. I was actually very comfortable with my identity as a critical care physician. It suited me, um, and yet, I'm here to tell you that your identity as you know it can dissolve in an instant. I went in a matter of hours from being a functioning physician to losing a pregnancy, finding myself on the operating room table in multi-system organ failure, and hearing the anesthesiologist say, we're losing her. She's circling the drain. I survived thanks to the great skill of teams of people caring for me. But I left the hospital in a different state. I was in a wheelchair. I was dependent on oxygen. I was unable to walk even a few steps unassisted. I had had a stroke from lack of blood flow during my operation. My balance was terrible. I was inarticulate and very slow. I'd lost a lot of words. Words like shoes. I couldn't remember the word shoes when I needed my mom to bring them for physical therapy. 
I love shoes. <laughs> and I didn't recognize myself. It's incredible how unfamiliar the ground can be. But worse, I didn't recognize medicine. The profession that I had venerated and wanted to belong to from the time I was a child looked completely different to me from the patient bedside. I saw discoordination of care, it, difficulties communicating within teams and with me and my family. I saw at times an inability to attend to human suffering. We received a bill, in fact, for the attempted resuscitation of the baby that was issued when we had failed to enroll the baby in our insurance plan, which of course no one could explain when we should have done that since the baby wasn't born alive. Healing means to return to wholeness. And this is the true purpose of healthcare, to heal. And healing is broader than a cure. We sometimes can't cure our patients while still healing them, bringing them back to wholeness. My individual healing required me to confront a lot of things. And this quote, healing requires entering with intention that which you've run away from. I thought about that a lot. It wasn't easy to think about what I'd run away from, but I knew what I had run to when going into medicine. I had run towards wisdom and certainty and authority, a sense of prestige, wanting to care for people, which meant, in a sense, I was running away from humility, ambiguity, and vulnerability. As a patient, I was completely and totally vulnerable. In healthcare, what have we run away from? What are the things we need to run towards and able to fulfill our promise of healing? What my illness gave me, truly, was a different lens to view our industry a vantage point on medicine that allowed me to really think about what kind of a physician I would need to be to provide the kind of healing that I needed and what I needed from our system. And these are the four aspects of medicine that I believe need to come together in order to heal. We must have proximity to our patients. This is true whether we're a frontline provider, we cannot provide, true healing from a computer. This is true whether we're in administration. The further we get from the bedside of our patients, the less we know about what's needed. Instead of aggregating the power within medicine, we need to strive for mutuality, to believe that it's only together that we can heal in partnership with our patients. We need humility to not believe we have the answers, and to always start with a beginner's mind, to question. And resilience, which I think is a bit different than how we typically think of resilience. Resilience is believing that you are already whole, despite what may be happening, that you have what you need to be whole. 
So first, mutuality. My first memory waking from that first catastrophic night in the operating room was four days later in the surgical ICU. And I awoke to the voice of my childhood priest who was making the sign of the cross on my body. I hadn't seen him since my wedding. And I can tell you as an intensivist, I would have rather woken up on heart and lung bypass because that would have at least meant they were trying, right? If my priest was there, I thought I was done for. And my brother was in the room and he lived in Boston at the time and didn't like me enough to travel. So I immediately thought I must be dying. I made a motion with my restrained hand. I was on a ventilator, and so my hands were restrained. I just wanted to write, am I dying? And they wouldn't give me a pen because they were afraid I would ask about the baby, and they had decided they weren't ready to tell me. So that was when I learned that we even control what we allow patients to know about their own bodies, their own health. We believe we are the holders of their information, and we share it only when we think it's appropriate. What would it look like? What would the alternative be to truly share power with our patients, to achieve mutuality? One of my next memories is overhearing the surgical rounding team. They were in the hallway discussing my case, and you know, I, as a physician, I was excited. I could hear what they were saying. I could know what was wrong with me for the first time. And I heard the resident say that I was post-op day four, status post-crash C-section for fetal demise with intraoperative observation of a large subcapsular hematoma. So I had bled into the space around my liver. I had crushed my liver from the blood loss. He said I'd received 26 units of packed red blood cells with additional cryo and platelets and FFP, that I was up 40 pounds, that I was anuric, my kidneys weren't working. And as a physician, I, I started making almost a work list. I understood that if I was post-op day four and I still was not producing urine, I was on the ventilator from all this excess resuscitation fluid, I'd probably need dialysis to get off the ventilator. I almost felt as if I was a part of the team. And then I heard him say, she's been trying to die on us. And it made me mad because I knew what I looked like. I was horribly jaundiced from the liver failure. I was over 200 pounds from the resuscitation, which on my body is a lot. I had wide swaths of bruising from a coagulopathy. I had two large bore trauma lines as big as garden hoses, one in my neck and one in my groin. I was in refractory shock. I was hypothermic. Um, I knew I looked a fright, but I also felt incredibly strong. And I felt that by saying that I was trying to die, he was attributing an intention to me that wasn't true. And he was declaring that our relationship was adversarial, that I was on one side and he was on the other. Hierarchies are designed to prevent mutuality. Separateness is designed to prevent mutuality. This is a painting by Frida Kahlo. 
She also has the distinction of having suffered a miscarriage and being brought back to health at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit when her husband Diego Rivera was painting the beautiful socialist murals in the Rivera court at the DIA. And it's a painting of her longtime physician, Dr. Farrell. At the time of this painting, he'd operated on her eight times. And you don't need me to tell you that he was unable to heal her. You see her seated in a wheelchair. And yet, she's painted him in a style called Restrepo. It's painting on metal. And it's normally reserved for the painting of saints. She's painted her physician, who couldn't heal her, in the visage of a saint. And her palette is her heart, and her brushes are tipped in her own blood. But what really strikes me about this painting is that they've taken on characteristics of each other. Instead of her normally colorful Mexican robes, she's dressed in black and white to echo his suit. And he's taken on her characteristic facial features. They have changed each other. Their relationships shape them in the image of each other. This, to me, is what mutuality looks like. Proximity. This is a very famous painting by Magritte. It is not a pipe. It's called The Treason of Images. It's a very good rendition of a pipe. It looks like a pipe. It's so three-dimensional, you can almost feel that you could take it out of the painting. But it is not a pipe. As Abraham Verges said, the map is not the territory. In every hospital, there are representations of our patients that are easier to attend to than the patient themselves. The CT scan is easier to look at than the suffering. The bandages are easier to look at than the wound. For my team, they believed in a version of me that lived in the computer, a patient who was in refractory shock with a hemoglobin of three that wasn't recovering, that wanted to die. When the real version of me in the bed was incredibly strong and was trying to live, we confuse reality with representations of reality. But the map is not the territory. We need proximity in order to heal. This is a painting by George Chicoteau. It, it represents the first attempt to treat breast cancer with radiation therapy. He's not only the painter, but he's also the physician that's represented in the painting. And I love this painting for a lot of reasons, but I'm always struck by how exposed and vulnerable the patient looks. It, it also seems that her blankets are lower than they need to be, given where the radiation beam is. She looks cold. I want to, to raise her blankets. And his gaze is directed at his fancy new technology. He is not meeting her suffering. She is exposed and vulnerable before him. Even when we have physical proximity to our patients, we may not connect with them. This would not be as beautiful of a painting if instead of that steampunk machine in the background, it was our electronic medical record. But this is what we look like to our patients so much of the time. 
We don't meet their suffering. We're attending to something else, even when we have proximity. So there, there came a time in my illness where I had to be put back together again. I had all of these really grotesque hernias eviscerating out of my abdominal wall. And I went to my trauma surgeon, who I still use as my primary care provider, and I said, you know, you need to fix this. It looks disgusting. And he looked at me really seriously, and he said, did anyone ever tell you what it was like in the operating room that night? And no one had. He started to describe what it was like from his perspective, how he'd gotten a frantic call from anesthesia because I'd only gone in with one peripheral IV and they couldn't get access. And so he was coming in with the ultrasound machine to try to get access so they could give me blood because I was bleeding out. And he walked into the room and he said, I saw your Foley bag, there wasn't any urine, I saw the monitor and your EKG was starting to spike and I knew you were going to go into an unstable rhythm. And we got a line in and we started dumping blood in, we were putting it in as fast as we could, but you kept getting more hypothermic and acidotic and so the blood wouldn't clot, we couldn't stop your bleeding. And then they got another line in and they started running it through the warmer and then he said, we closed you with a whip stitch. And I knew what he meant, because I'd been in operating rooms like that. A whip stitch is how you close a turkey at Thanksgiving. It's not how you close someone when you want them to heal. You don't approximate the tissues neatly. You don't pay attention to your stitches. You're closing them for autopsy or a funeral or for the next few hours of Hail Mary care, you never expect that they will be in your clinic complaining that they can't wear a bathing suit. And so as we started to talk about hernia repair, I suddenly found I got really interested in hernia repair, uh, so much so that I actually subscribed to the American Proceedings of the Hernia Society because I had to read the articles so that I could send them to him because he might not have read the most recent meta-analysis out of Japan. I didn't know. And I would send him emails late at night with questions. And you know, I told myself, this is what an activated patient looks like. I hadn't had the opportunity to be an activated patient before, and this was what it looked like. And I think he just tolerated me, because he assumed I was crazy after what had happened. But eventually, even for him, the questions became too much, and he said, Seems like you have a lot of questions. Why don't you come in and we're gonna answer them all at once. I thought that sounded great. So I went in and he looked at me and he said, I want you to tell me what you're most afraid of. That was easy. I told him I was most afraid of leaving the operating room with an ostomy bag. He told me that I had between a 12 and 14 percent chance of developing what's called an enterocutaneous fistula. And I was afraid of that. And he said, I can't tell you how much I don't want that to happen to you. I will do everything I can to make sure that doesn't happen. And just like that, I could trust him because he saw me. My trauma surgeon understood what I didn't know which is that you can't bludgeon fear with data. 
There was not a paper I was going to read that was going to make me feel safe. I needed my surgeon to do that for me. I needed the kind of trust that can only come when we have intimate proximity with our patients. We must allow for the possibility that we don't know everything. So it took me a little time to go back to medicine, but I eventually did, and I thought I had learned a lot. I thought I was practicing in a really patient-centered way. Uh, but I still had a lot to learn. I'm a pulmonary physician, so I have a patient who has cystic fibrosis, and he's since undergone lung transplant surgery, and it's amazing when you think about what his body's had to endure just to go on living. And unfortunately, during one of his hospitalizations, he had a prolonged course of antibiotics that were necessary but had the rare side effect of optic neuritis, so he also went blind in our care. And to make it worse, he had been a graphic artist prior to that. So one day, I walk into his room, and he says, you know, I can sense the pity in your voice, even though you can't, I can't see you. And he was right. I was looking at him through a very privileged lens of ableness, and I was seeing someone whose life was, you know, in ruin. And it didn't match his definition of himself. He had learned to navigate his world, not only with chronic illness, but now with blindness. He felt strong and capable. And I was not reflecting his strength and determination back to him. I was doing to him exactly what had been done to me. He said, since I was a kid, I have never met someone who actually sees me as whole. Though the care is excellent, it doesn't help me to see myself as being complete as is. As hard as I had been working, I had failed to recognize the integrity of his experience. I had viewed him through a lens that wasn't true, that didn't exist for him. Pity is designed to ensure separateness. And our patients are so strong, and they are so resilient. First impressions, a pile of junk, right? Maybe you see the beat-up old table. Maybe you see a string instrument or a mask. But if we shift our perspective just slightly, we start to see something take shape. And if we look through that square at the front, you see this. I use this sculpture to illustrate how our perception can switch. That reperception has the ability to transform situations. Things change as they are seen differently, not because we are altering reality itself. We make judgments when we see things that may not be what we're truly seeing. We must have the humility 
to see possibilities outside of what is immediately visible to us. When I first left my ICU room during that first acute hospitalization, it was to have my trauma lines removed for a PICC line. And at that time, we did that in interventional radiology. And a transporter came to get me, and he took me down, and he handed my plastic chart over to the radiology tech. And she opened it, and she saw a baby's wristband inside. And she said, oh, what did you have, a boy or a girl? And I said, oh, we had a girl, but she died. And so then she started crying, which made me start crying. And so then we're crying and hugging each other. And the transporter, this big guy, is in the corner like, how is this my life? And they're not paying me enough. And so we're headed back to my room. And he says, so you got to go for any more tests? And I thought for sure he was going to avoid taking me anywhere ever again. I told him I, they wanted to do a CAT scan to see if the bleeding had stopped. And when it was time to go for the CAT scan, he was there. Whether it was through randomness of scheduling or personal agency, he was there. And when we got down to radiology and he passed my chart over, under his breath, he didn't intend for me to hear, he said, you do not ask her about the baby. And do you know, for the rest of my months-long hospitalization, whenever I was off the floor, the transporters protected me. They united around a single patient in this enormous hospital, and they created this protective net around me. The transporters understood that though it was their job to transport me, it was their purpose to keep me safe not just from physical harm, but from emotional harm. The humility that comes from not knowing someone's story, but acting, that's what they taught me. We went on to have a son. Um, he came very early because they also hadn't really had time to sew up my uterus well. So he was kept in the neonatal ICU for a long time. And once I was discharged, I would go and visit him every day. And one day, the parking lot attendant says to me, you know, I don't know who you're visiting, but I see you come here every day, and you don't leave till after my shift is done. I sure hope whoever you're visiting gets through this OK. And it stunned me, because this man knew nothing more about me than what he saw as part of his job, watching people park their own cars. He wasn't even parking the cars. He just watched people park cars. And yet, he was able to make my suffering feel seen in a way that my care team couldn't, despite having all of this information available to them. We have to be humble enough to know that attending to suffering is the most important part of what we do. And we don't need to know everything to be able to do it. Resilience. We are so fortunate in medicine. We have what any other industry would kill for. We get to work at the intersection of what we love, what we're good at, 
what the world needs and what we can be paid for. It's this beautiful intersection of passion, profession, vocation, and mission. I don't think that there's an English word for this, but the Japanese word ikigai, a reason for being. We have a reason for being that's built into our jobs. So what is it that keeps us from inhabiting that beautiful center space more of the time? What is it that, that causes us to hear that medicine isn't what it used to be and physicians wouldn't recommend it as a career for their children? What is it that leads to the rates of physician suicide and attrition? So, this is adapted from my friend Deidre Mylod. It's rather dramatically titled, Fulcrum of Physician Suffering. Um, but what you see on the left is all of the reasons that we go into medicine. It's intensely meaningful. We get to help, sometimes even cure and heal. We have some measure of autonomy and appreciation in the community. And tied to all of that are inherent stressors. There's no way to do the work that we do wherever you work in medicine without being exposed to suffering. You just can't do it. It's everywhere. We can't fix everything. Sometimes our jobs become monotonous. We lose sight of the patients behind the work. We have the ultimate responsibility often, and the blame can be hard when things go wrong. But everyone I've ever showed this to says, yeah, but I'm fine with all of that. I knew all of that when I got into medicine. That is not the problem. The problem is the added suffering. And these are the areas where really transformative organizations are working to alleviate the added suffering so that we can get back to just the inherent suffering that we signed up for. Um, not acknowledging that the work that we do is intensely meaningful and that time pressures can create situations where, where the work can't be done in a way that's still fulfilling and meaningful. That creates a sense of moral distress. There's a risk of exposure in medicine that is outside the range of any other field. There's a lack of healing spaces sometimes Values don't align within organizations. These are the things we have to change. So when we talk about resilience, and there's a lot of talk about resilience in medicine, we're often talking about individual resilience. But all individual resilience can do is change the tipping point. Given enough pressure, everyone will still tip. We need to think about resilience in terms of organization resilience and cultural resilience. What are the things we can embed in our cultures that make them safe spaces? When I first went back to medicine, what I knew was that I did not have the tools that I needed to do the work even though I had had a million years of postgraduate education, I didn't know how to have serious conversations and deliver bad news well. I had never been taught. And so I sought out training in Pittsburgh through an organization called Vital Talk. And I learned 
how to communicate with my patients. And I was still doing that from my patient lens. I believed that my patients needed me to do that. What was transformative for me was that it actually helped me because I was able to, to feel as if I was helping even in situations where I couldn't provide a cure. I was still able to heal. So we were able to bring back this training to Henry Ford Hospital and make it our own. So we used small groups of improvisational actors from the city of Detroit, and our care providers are trained through experiential learning cases in how to deliver bad news well. So for example, one of the cases we use, the, the actor is a man who's received a call from his daughter's daycare that something happened and he has to go to the ER and that's all he knows. And the ER physician in this case knows that the, the little girl drowned in the baby pool at the daycare. And he has to tell the patient's family member this. Now for any physician, that is their worst day. They will remember that day for the rest of their lives. But to think that we thought physicians could do that without having a roadmap for those discussions, without having the tools in their toolkit to respond to emotion with empathy to reframe situations so that we soften the blow. That is absurd. Although a conversation's not a procedure and there are infinite permutations of how a conversation can go, there are still tools that we need and we can rely on. Interventions such as this that buttress the work of, of our physicians and frontline staff are are not only important for our patients, but they're important for the well-being and engagement of our physicians. We've truly seen that. We all also have gone to a, a coaching model inspired by Atul Gawande, who wrote about it in, in The New Yorker, that having someone at elbow level who can coach you during difficult situations allows you to continue to work towards mastery that we are not fully formed, clearly out of training, and there's always so much growth. So we partner all new hires with a senior staff mentor who acts as a physician coach to them. And training our coaches is really as simple as teaching them to be attentive listeners who ask reflective questions and answers. So as you heard, I. I wrote a book about my experience as a patient, and you know, I won't pretend that it's not difficult to do culture change work like this at an organization that not only you still work at, but that you also receive care at. Um, it's, it's been a journey, and I've been really inspired by how our organization has affected change. And I'll tell you one more story, and then I'll stop. Um, so our son is now eight, and one night he's sitting and he's doing his homework, and it's that crazy hour between six and seven where you're still getting calls from the hospital, but you're trying to make dinner and you're trying to help with homework, 
And he's literally just sitting there staring at his pencil. And I'm thinking, oh my God, we're never going to get through his pencil. And then he says, you know what I love? That every pencil has an eraser attached. It's like the world expects everyone to make mistakes. That's pretty cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Anish. Thank you for being here. Wow. <laughs> so um, you address the very complicated concept of hope um, throughout your story and in your book in, in so many different ways. Um, when, I, when I read the book, the, the whip stitch actually um, threw me off um, to, to, be, to have that procedure after, after your surgery. Um, really spoke to the concept of hope. Um, the other thing, too, in your book, you mentioned, you know, should we have hope? When should we have hope? When should we convey hope? How should we convey hope? And what's our accountability there from a physician standpoint, a, a provider standpoint, from a family standpoint? How important is hope? You know, I had a really complicated relationship with hope as an intensive care physician because often hope or a miracle was invoked when truly from a medical standpoint, there was no hope left. And it felt like this terrible disconnect. But one of my very first patients when I came back to medicine um, was a woman who actually had exactly the same syndrome that I had had. She had bled into her liver. She went into kidney failure. She required massive transfusion. And it was really clear right from the beginning that she was going to die. She had swelling on her brain. She had to have a decompressive craniotomy. And I sat with that family every day. And although I knew she was going to die, allowing me for that hope, it not only was it important for them, but it was important for me. Because what I recognized is that hope is not just this unfettered optimistic emotion where you're ignoring reality. Hope is actually a very realistic orientation when nothing is going